Hello. This is the Transformation of European Politics series. My name is Tiger Bushadi, and I am a political scientist at the University of Zurich. In this podcast series, I talk to other political scientists about a publication of theirs that can help us better understand the transformation of European politics in the past 20 years. We link these academic works to broader debates within political science, but also discuss how they relate to current political developments. In this episode, I talk to Philip Ayub, who is Associate Professor at Occidental College. Our conversation focuses on his book, When States Come Out, Europe's Sexual Minorities and the Politics of Visibility, which was published with Cambridge University Press in 2016. The book analyzes changes in LGBT rights and attitudes towards sexual minorities. It argues that norm brokers play a key role for how international norm pressure for more equality is translated into national discourse and legislation. Local activists and organizations can help frame rights expansion in a way that fits the national discourse. However, national actors in the form of religious nationalist movements often constitute a strong antagonist to rights expansion. We discuss how the politics of queer visibility go beyond the question of same-sex marriage and what challenges lie ahead for equal recognition of sexual minorities. Especially trans rights and intersectional questions of queerness and, for example, racism, remain strongly contested fields. While much progressive change has been achieved, many aspects of queer life remain invisible. If you want to know more about Philip and his research, you can follow him on Twitter under at PMA34 or visit his website. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Hello, Philip. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Tarek. Today, we're going to talk about your book, When States Come Out, in which you analyze why some European countries have become more LGBT-friendly than others, and not just in, type of, in terms of um, legislation and laws and rights passed, but also in terms of public opinion. Before we talk about your book in more detail, I wanted to ask you, what was the motivation behind the book? How did you get to working on the project? Well, yeah. Um, first of all, thank you so much for inviting me to be part of your podcast. It's a really fantastic uh, lineup of folks you brought together. I'm really honored to be part of it. Um, the uh, yeah, the motivation for the book, I uh, I guess, like many others, I mean, I was uh, I was a master's student in the mid 2000s, um, and uh, I was at UNC Chapel Hill, but also in Berlin uh, at the Humboldt University. And while I was there, that was a time of pretty intense political homophobia in Poland. And there were a lot of bills being introduced that were uh, vilifying uh, queer people, like removing them, uh, removing LGBT people from professions uh, like teaching children. I mean, that wasn't successful, but it, it was proposed. And then there were a lot of successful bans on um, pride marches or demonstrations for LGBT rights in many Polish cities. And, uh, And yeah, so I was a student in Berlin and what was really interesting was that there was a lot of mobilization in Berlin, a lot by Polish migrants who lived in Berlin, um, but also by, by Germans who kind of in solidarity were organizing campaigns to fund buses to go to Poland to march in what would end up being an illegal demonstration um, and also to kind of raise money for activism there. And it just it fascinated me. I mean, I... I think from a queer perspective, it made sense that there was this kind of solidarity across borders because, you know, solidarity, love, emotion, uh, empathy across borders in queer communities is something that we've had for, you know, for a very long time. Um, at the same time, from a political science perspective, it, it was also a little bizarre, you know, what, you know, what's rational about going to, to march in a country where if you win your rights, they don't uh, apply to you. Um, and it, it, That, you know, that provoked a lot of interesting questions for me about, you know, why some countries move on this issue and others don't. And also why there's uh, resistance, um, uh, why there's resistance to uh, strong resistance in some cases to this kind of activism and not in others. So, um, so yeah, I, I applied to do a PhD and I actually applied on a different topic related to European common foreign security policy. And, you know, thank God I didn't choose that <laughs> route, but, um, but I, uh, I was a little nervous about applying on a project related to 
uh, queer politics just because I hadn't really read that. I hadn't seen that much in IR and comparative politics about that uh, at the time. So I, I waited until I got to grad school to then have a and built relationships with my committee to then ask if it was okay to do to do this. But I, I think I, I think in the back of my mind, I always knew that I wanted to, to, to do this project. Yeah, I'm glad you did it. And we, we have this book now. So as the, the, the core argument really in your book is one about what you call the politics of visibility. And there you really use an analogy to coming outs and coming outs on the individual level you discuss, but then also coming out of states as you, as you call it. Can you explain that analogy a little more to me and this idea of a politics of visibility? Yeah. So, I mean, it's a bit tricky and I actually want to be careful not to say that I kind of expect individuals to have to come out, which was an idea that, you know, that some elements of the movement prom promoted in the past. I, I think it's a little tricky in the sense that it takes a lot of privilege to come out because, you know, different people will face different kind of costs for, for doing so. And so um, I talk about visibility both in kind of individual visibility and interpersonal visibility, which is, you know, queer people seeing each other, which is able to then, you know, move the personal to the political, but then also in public visibility, which is kind of this visibility of the group. And I think that has been, you know, quite important for elevating certain issues in politics and demanding uh, rights around uh, LGBT people. And um, if I could back up for a moment on your question, you know, there, uh, there were a lot of older explanations in the literature that were focusing on certain fact, uh, domestic conditions that led to uh, states introducing rights. So those conditions had to do with, you know, how secular the state was. Was it um, was it a really strong democracy? Was it a rich state? Did it have a strong history of women's movements? There are all those kind of factors that really did explain first mover states like Sweden or the Netherlands, you know, um, but those conditions, while they're very important, they, they, they were kind of muddling this process of uh, explaining new, new kind of states that adopted uh, LGBT rights. And if we think of marriage equality, for example, you know, it's a pretty new issue. Most of my students think it's been around forever, but the first state with civil unions was Denmark and the first uh, state with full marriage equality was Sweden. And that was in 1989 and 2001, respectively. And since then, You know, we have multiple dozens of states around the world with an institution like that um, in Europe, over 20. And so there was something international that was happening. Also, it wasn't just a um, domestic domestic factors, because a lot of the new states that were adopting these kind of uh, Uh, laws were uh, were not like Denmark and the Netherlands. They had uh, they had very different domestic conditions. So that's um, and that's why I started to try to think about visibility in terms of visibility of a group and norms around uh, that norms that governed uh, LGBT rights and how they became visible in different states. And I started to think about the mechanisms under which. Uh, these ideas traveled from uh, from one state uh, to another. Mm -hmm. So at, at the core, really, it is an argument about norm diffusion, right? And you, you, you come at it very much from an, from an IR perspective. But then it's also there is an, an, an interaction with domestic actors. And can you tell me a little more about this? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I, I see it kind of as a as a CP and IR perspective. And, you know, in terms of, um, you know, in terms of how it interacts with the domestic condition, all norms that enter the domestic states are, are received differently. And I'll, I'll get to that in, in just a second. But, you know, the conditions under which the international conditions under which norms become visible um, have a lot to do with kind of three channels of visibility that I theorize. And so, um, you know, there has been scholarship saying that there's a norm has developed around uh, LGBT rights as part of human rights. But part of the argument of the book is that the felt intensity of norms might vary across states depending on how visible they come there. And so first I theorize, you know, why some states are more porous to this norm than others. Why are they more likely to be infected by these ideas? You could you could say, I guess, from diffusion uh, language. And so there there are. You know, I look at this both quantitatively and qualitatively, but there are, you know, if we go back several decades, um, we can look at indicators of 
you know, how porous a state might be in terms of uh, norms becoming around LGBT rights becoming visible in the domestic space. And I isolate three kinds of channels of visibility there. Uh, the first channel is a social channel of visibility. So um, there are states vary uh, in the degree to which um, there is a circulation of ideas around queer people. And so, uh, for example, some refer to that as the Will and Grace effect, which is Will and Grace is a show um, that was popular in the 90s in the U.S. about uh, 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 gay characters. And it, it traveled and was watched in many different countries. So that, you know, social channels of visibility can introduce new ways of understanding oneself uh, and circulate ideas across countries. Another channel is a political channel of visibility, and that involves states that are that have joined um, into international organizations. And the more embedded they become, the more likely they are to have political pressures to also follow certain kinds of norms. So um, the European Union, for example, uh, has uh, provisions that that compel states to introduce some level of LGBT rights, the first being part of the Amsterdam Treaty, which made it um, illegal to uh, uh, to discriminate in employment on the basis of sexual orientation. And then the third channel of visibility, is, and this connects to your question about moving into the domestic, um, is a mediated channel, uh, a mediated channel of visibility by uh, transnational activists. And they really play an important role in the book because these transnational activists, which have actually existed uh, since the 1800s um, around queer politics, uh, these are local activists that are also embedded in transnational activist networks like the International Lesbian, Gay, Bi, Trans, and Intersex Association, for example. Um, these are networks that uh, advocacy networks that bring activists together to strategize and to think about how to uh, both transport international ideas um, across borders, but then what's really important about the about this channel is that the activists are also local and that they, I call them norm brokers in the book because they really know how to frame and package those ideas for a given audience. And that's because these ideas are really contentious and they need to be packaged in different ways um, for different audiences. So, and, you know, I spent a lot of time in Poland and, and there... Uh, activists, for example, sometimes use biblical or Catholic references to a pride parade around, um, you know, like love thy neighbor was a theme of a, of a equality march there. That's not a kind of frame that we would use in where I am now in Los Angeles, but it, it really, um, is important to keep that in mind when you're talking about these rights in a, a country that is predominantly, uh, uh, Catholic and so and where Catholicism plays a big role in Polish national identity. So these are um, ways that you know this channel of visibility both is international but it is also uh, attuned to the domestic context. And uh, before we talk about these domestic actors in more detail in a second, I wanted to ask you why visibility is such so important for marginalized groups? Why is it so important for them to achieve that politically? Yeah, I mean, it's politically powerful because they, they're often not seen to exist, you know, before, before they're visible. And so uh, if we think back to, you know, early activism on gay rights, for example, in the 1800s, there was, there were petitions across Germany and the Netherlands to try uh, by uh, organizations uh, where Magnus Hirschfeld was really involved, uh, that they were trying to count, you know, get a kind of number of how many, you know, uh, homosexual people there are. And the purpose of that was just because, uh, and if you, if you look how they talked about it, it was the purpose of that was that once you made them visible and say that there exists this community, then that's a basis with which to ask for rights. Um, it's a problematic process for sure, becoming visible. And, you know, the some we can talk about later too, but within, you know, LGBT communities, there's also certain types of LGBT people that are more visible than others. And there's certain kind of power differentials within the group and hierarchies in terms of who gets rights and who becomes more included. And, um, and so there's always, you know, there's, there are many elements of LGBT politics and people within queer communities that remain invisible, you know, but the, um, the shedding light on certain communities does, I think, provide a platform for saying that they should be recognized in the legal framework of the state. 
Mm -hmm. You already mentioned Poland as one case that is very important in your book. And I thought it was quite interesting. You basically distinguish two sets of countries. So you make a first obvious distinction, I think one where many people think about, that is one between Western Europe and one of new EU member states, Central Eastern European countries. But then one core argument of your book really feature, uh, tries to explain different trajectories of Central and Eastern European countries, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, I really wanted to avoid um, kind of saying that this was a Eastern Europe or Western Europe kind of issue and creating that you know, artificial binary, because as you just pointed out, there is a lot of variation also within uh, Central Eastern Europe on this issue. Um, the, there was some kind of method as a methodological heuristic. It was it was useful to think of it that way, just because uh, in part because um, the the movements uh, in, movements were more established in in Western Europe before the fall of the Berlin Wall. So it did create a nice platform also to look and see it changes and kind of question why some some states coming out of communism move differently and at different rates than others. Uh, so there are, you know, there's both, both factors uh, are at play, but um, yeah, as you pointed out, there are, there are different tra trajectories um, in, uh, in central and Eastern Europe too, with some states uh, moving on this issue uh, quicker than others, which I argue is for the reasons that I noted above. And I look also at Western Europe and Eastern Europe separately sometimes because it, we can show that some of the domestic factors that were so important in theorizing the first mover states, like, you know, how secular, how wealthy, how democratic, those play a much stronger role when we look at Western Europe. So when we look at the first mover countries, indeed, uh, that valuable research that, that really highlighted those factors, saying that a state has to be this um, rich and this, uh, uh, this modern to adopt these rights, Those factors do play a role. Like you do see that um, that you know when you look at analysis of just Western Europe, that that's there are strong correlations there. However, what's interesting when you look at the new adopter states, uh, which I I looked at them, states that joined the European Union in 2004 and seven. So those were um, uh, those were states that were predominantly uh, post-Soviet states and uh, post-socialist states and. If we look at if we look there, we see other kind of factors playing a more central role, and that's where those channels of visibility that I talked about really seem to matter a lot. So a lot of those kind of international channels uh, are the ones that played more of an effect um, in determining how new adopters adopt these rights. And given that I think this applies also globally, and some of my other work uh, looks at it also beyond Europe, that there. There is, you know, there is a theme that there's many surprising kind of countries that adopt these rights in more recent years, in the last uh, few decades. And a lot of those are impacted a lot by these kind of transnational networks of diffusion. Mm -hmm. And you, of course, look at these two different sets of outcomes, rights on the one hand and public opinion on the other hand. And I think only looking at the variation already will help some people overcome certain cliches that they have i guess usually people think of the netherlands and sweden and denmark as those as those very tolerant states but i always think spain is a great example to also demonstrate um that it's uh, it, it's not as easy right exactly um yeah and i mean spain is a great example because it's it's a it, it is a state that even when i started you know my phd was kind of still on the border of being dismissed as, um, as oh, it's a very Catholic state or it's a newer democracy or, you know, there's, there are all these kind of questions, uh, factors that were kind of a little bit dismissive of the likelihood of Spain becoming the leader around LGBT rights that it is. It has a really, really strong uh, record. Um, but, uh, or we can think of many other states like, you know, Ireland and Malta, which are two small Catholic islands and, uh, and, Ireland introduced marriage equality by popular referendum. Malta has another small Catholic island has the currently is on top of the uh, LGBT rights index globally in terms of the rights it grants um, and also has been really a leader on trans recognition. And so those kind of states yeah, have made really um, uh, impressive, uh, impressive gains. And there are, I think, some of those factors about 
uh, related to transnational uh, politics that really played a role in, in them uh, striving to, to have, uh, to have a, a leading uh, human rights role like that. Um, you already mentioned the role of norm brokers really in for the positive outcome. So translating this norm pressure, this international norm pressure and helping the progressive cause. But there are, of course, then also other domestic um, organizations and counter movement that have the opposite effect that you discuss in your book. Absolutely. And uh, they're a really important part of the book. The, I think the second half of it is really focused on the unfortunate kind of dynamic that whenever you have visibility around LGBT uh, issues that they're met, usually, I mean, almost, it's to be expected that they're met with active resistance across states. How that plays out will vary according to uh, different processes the book discusses, but um, we can always assume that there will be some kind of resistance. And, you know, that has a lot to do with if we look at feminist work and queer work that looks at the fluidity of gender, gender identity, and sexuality, um, the fluidity of those concepts as a real threat to nation and to national identity, which is usually, you know, a very fixed and determined kind of conception. And so a lot of times, When these conversations enter the domestic space, there is a, there is a discourse of them being, uh, threatening, threatening to nationhood. And oftentimes religion is embedded in that understanding as well of like the national identity and how LGBT rights movements want to, want to destroy or take away what is unique or special about uh, a, a given context, national identity. That's a lot of times how the opposition will frame this. And that can turn out a lot of people to mobilize, uh, against LGBT rights. And so this was a dynamic that the book already, had, you know, was charting. We're looking at kind of countries that scored really highly in kind of national identity. And also when religion was embedded in the idea of the popular nation, those are countries where we had really strong domestic resistance to LGBT rights. Spain isn't a kind of a counterexample because even though it's a Catholic country, it is a country that during its democratization process, the Catholic Church lost a lot of credibility as a political actor because of its connections to Franco, you know, so it kind of fell on the wrong side of transition. Whereas the Catholic Church, even though it's the same church, it had a very different effect in Poland, where since it is so embedded in the idea of the popular nation in Poland, and given that it it's remembered as kind of a resistor of um, national socialist occupation during the Second World War, it's remembered as a resistor of Soviet Union's influence in Poland and as a liberalizing force that came with democracy. It got to have a lot more room as kind of helping to def define the national narrative of opposition towards LGBT rights in Poland. So there, you know, the, the way resistance plays out is really complicated. And I wouldn't just say that it's, you know, a certain country is Catholic. So no, it doesn't get LGBT rights. That's not the case. There's a lot of variation. There, like in the U.S., where Catholics score higher on accepting LGBT people than uh, Protestants because of the evangelical community here, um, so there's a lot of variation like that in the domestic context that we have to think about explaining. Um, and then, not to to go on, but I get unfortunate with backlash. There's a lot to talk about. There's also a new dynamic, though, um, that goes outside of the state, uh, and that's something which we see. Uh, more and more in terms of backlash, which is that there's also coordination globally, um, in resisting, uh, LGBT rights, which, uh, which in a way mirrors a lot of what LGBT activists have done, uh, in favor of those rights. Um, but in the last 10 years, especially we see uh, a mix of kind of powerful states that set a precedent as kind of defenders of traditional values. We see important Uh, INGOs like the World Congress of Family that operate across borders and mobilize people to, to, you know, quote unquote, protect, uh, states against, you know, what's called gender ideology. Uh, Roman Kuar and David Paternot have a, a great edited volume that looks at, you know, how gender ideology is framed in Europe, for example. Um, and gender ideology is kind of a bundle that means It's been constructed to mean kind of opposition to LGBT rights, but also to women's rights. And, um, and though, and that's working quite globally in fora like the European Union, the United Nations, where states are, are uh, trying to uh, oppose advances. Also with the support of international organizations like the Orthodox Church or the Catholic Church. Um, so oppose advances around LGBT rights and then also promote new kinds of like religious liberty policies or 
um, so-called uh, anti-gay propaganda uh, laws, which also spread you know, across borders. So that it's the other kind of uh, side of that coin. Mm. From that perspective, I was wondering, there, there is this argument that the, especially the EU's attempt to uh, diffuse this norm, right, to, to help uh, LGBT actors in other countries has not only had positive effects, but I think there is this idea that actually it has led to even increased backlash because it has allowed countries like Russia, for example, basically to um, to construct LGBT rights as this Western import. And so there, there, I guess there is this idea, this argument that it makes it more, uh, more difficult even. Uh, yeah, that's, that's a really important observation. And I do agree that there is really, uh, you know, David Paternan and I wrote a lot about this kind of conflicted relationship between LGBT rights in Europe. And it definitely has a lot of problematic aspects to it because when you include LGBT people more and more centrally as kind of a European value or as part of the European Union's mission, it can create new kinds of boundaries and exclusions. So for example, it can be used then as a political tool to say that Turkey is, you know, too quote unquote homophobic to be part of the European Union. So it can include certain countries. It can exclude countries within Europe, for example, like calling Poland or other countries backwards for not having or not European enough or not meeting the kind of limitus test of being a good EU member state because of LGBT politics. It can also include exclude groups of people, for example, saying that migrants should be blocked because they're so they are so-called um, too homophobic to be good European citizens, which is also really problematic. And we have a lot of evidence that that uh, that disputes that. But those kind of constructions of associating LGBT rights with Europe, um, especially in queer theory, there's been a lot of debate about how, how this is problematic. At the same time, there is, you know, a bit of a a causal narrative in your question that I think is a little bit more complicated, whether, and that was whether the EU, um, you know, uh, championing LGBT rights produces such and such kind of effects. And I think that there, the causality of that is a little bit more tricky because we also know from research like uh, Meredith Weiss and Mike Bozia's work that sometimes states preempt that association. And um, David Paternod and I have also argued that activists have found themselves in kind of a double bind where they that association exists before they, they ask for it. So, for example, with the Ukraine, uh, with the Ukraine, Ukraine crisis, there was a, another case where LGBT people became front and center in contemporary geopolitics, which uh, which is that. Um, it was kind of said uh, by the Russian Duma was, was saying that, you know, any uh, alignment uh, with the West or with the European Union by the Ukrainian government would be adopting these kind of uh, a decadent and sinful uh, set of policies that would uh, threaten uh, Ukrainian national identity. So all of a sudden, and they, this coin, this term was coined, it was called gay ropa, and it was, uh, to construct Europe as this gay friendly thing. And it, it is, it, it is true that with the visa liberalization policy, the EU did ask, um, did request that there is an anti-discrimination, a very minor anti-discrimination component, uh, around sexual orientation, uh, that that be adopted by the Ukrainian government. But it, I don't think it was, you know, I think that was partly what provoked it, but it was also, it was definitely also premeditated and it was, you know, Europe was going to be called gay ropa and attached to rainbow flags and political cartoons and uh, political leaders in Moscow were going to refer it to that way, either way. And so I think the construction of Europe and gay rights, what's interesting about it is it's not just, you know, progressive activists that have done it and well-meaning people. It's, it's that also the opponents have agreed on that, you know, and have used that to their advantage to say that we're different from the European Union or we're different from the West because we don't have this, you know, uh, a decadent or sinful kind of policy around queer people. Um, so it's, uh, and it happens in countries even before there's activism or before anyone is asking for LGBT rights that, that oftentimes leaders will politicize uh, LGBT people uh, as a, a tool to win elections, et cetera, uh, in, 
before anyone is, is asking for or championing that or promoting that. So, so in terms of same-sex rights and just generally attitudes toward uh, homosexuality, we've of course seen this really massive progressive shift. I think there's a quite there's been a quite unique transformation in if you compare values and if you compare legislation, um, let's say 20, 30 years ago in Europe and you look at it now, right? I mean, still, I'm recording this from Switzerland, which is one of the few countries, of course, left uh, in Western Europe uh, that does not have same-sex marriage. But how can we take stock now focusing on um, on same-sex rights and attitudes towards homosexuality, which is uh, homosexuality, which is a this has been a good trajectory and we're optimistic about the future. Yeah, I mean, it's, it feels like such a hard time to be optimistic about anything. I think there are reasons, though, to be optimistic. And I, I think there has, yeah, as on a whole, there have been a lot of really remarkable changes in public opinion. Um, they, they're, they're also complicated in that a lot of times we see that when, um, you know, when movements emerge and start asking for LGBT rights, that there can be also a backlash in public opinion because it will be for the first time that LGBT rights become debated and contested in the, in the domestic space. And it will also mobilize a lot of counter movements. Um, many, I mean, many of the countries I studied, counter movements are far, you know, far outnumber, uh, LGBT rights movements. Um, and a lot of existing organizations can find a new purpose to kind of oppose LGBT rights. So when they're first domestic, uh, discussed in the domestic space, there can be really, um, there can be really harsh reactions and it can actually uh, lower public opinion towards LGBT people. You know, whether that lasts, I think, I think really depends on where you are, um, where the state is, what kind of international communities it's embedded in, what the knowledge systems are at the international level and the society of states of which they're part. I think in Europe, typically, we do see attitudes improving then. Even if they dip down, they can go back up eventually um, because there's kind of a sustained contest um, between those arguments and there's enough uh, positive arguments uh, on, in favor of LGBT rights that I think uh, challenge them and they can be in some cases framed effectively as part of uh, values that uh, belong that are resonant and and local as well as part of a broader uh, international society of states that that European countries are part of um, but uh, but but yeah it's it's very complicated in the US we've seen uh, tremendous uh, movement on uh, improvement on LGBT rights. I and mean, keep in mind that in 2008, even in California, which is one of the most pro progressive states in, in the United States, um, the same day they elected uh, the historic election of electing uh, Barack Obama as the first African-American president, um, was also the day that California voters opposed uh, same-sex marriage in 2008 on a popular ballot. Um, so the fact that we now uh, since 2015 have marriage equality in the U.S. And even in these times, it feels like it's staying. It shows that huge jump in attitudes uh, and public opinion moving in favor of LGBT rights. At the same time, in the last three, four years, we've seen that kind of plateau and flatten out a little bit. It's not going up the way it did before. And I think that has a lot to do with the institutional context we find ourselves in right now with, um, with a, a current government that has really uh, done very little for, for LGBT communities and if not outright threaten uh, them. Mm -hmm. So sometimes it seems a bit that the, the victory over marriage has caused for some this idea, well, we're now done. And may maybe even more on the, on the straight side where a reaction is, what else do you want? Right. So it's, it, it seems that th th this idea is there that now that there is marriage, basically all uh, the problems have been solved. But we clearly don't agree with that. Right. Yeah, I don't agree with that. I mean, I it, what's interesting is that actually a lot of gay liberation movements didn't even want marriage equality originally because marriage was seen as kind of an institution that was also quite oppressive towards women and uh, more radical forms of queer politics were kind of opposed to asking for the institution. They wanted to dismantle it entirely. Um, but in part, and weird politics also in part, I think, because the counter movements uh, kept putting this pressure on LGBT movements 
um, to kind of prove that they were acceptable or accusing them of, uh, of, you know, harming conservative values that in the end, marriage equality, which is adopting, I guess, a, a conservative institution in the end, um, became so symbolic of LGBT rights movements. But that, that doesn't mean that it was the only thing that, um, these movements asked for or, uh, or definitely doesn't mean that we're, we're, we're done. In fact, many didn't even, even want it. A lot of issues, you know, like in the U.S., for example, you can still be fired in over 30 states um, if you come out as uh, gay or trans. You know, that's but we have marriage equality. <laughs> um, so, it, 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 you know, that's just one example to show that there's there's a lot of work, a lot of work to be done. Um, I, I think it is different for different groups. And marriage equality does benefit, um, you know, uh, certain LGBT people a lot. Definitely. Uh, I guess upper middle class white gays and lesbians maybe can access that institution more readily. Um, but there's a lot of other policy issues that, uh, affect trans people, for example, that are, um, that have been blocked or are, are limited and all other sorts of, uh, uh, LGBT issues on the agenda that also have, um, have not been, uh, that have not yet been realized. Um, and the fact that discrimination still exists in large numbers and including in quote unquote progressive countries in Europe, um, shows that, you know, this is a really ongoing struggle. And there's, uh, despite these kind of sudden and impressive changes that we've had, uh, in the last two decades, there's a really, really long, long way to go. I, I was wondering if you could also look at this from a perspective of uh, politics of visibility and in a way say, well, vis visibility for something like same-sex desire has been achieved and some legal uh, legal changes have been made to allow this and put this on equal footing. But I guess there are many, many other aspects of uh, queer practices and lifestyle that really have not uh, become comparably visible. Exactly. Yeah. And this is, you know, there's still so much erasure, for example. I mean, well, you can have like Pete Buttigieg as a presidential candidate have some traction now in the U.S. I mean, it's questionable whether he could have won as a gay candidate, but, um, you know, but he really was the, you know, quote unquote, right kind of visible. You know, he he has he's in a marriage. Um, he's kind of upper middle class, highly educated, was in the military, goes to church, has a white picket fence. So that was a kind of, you know, he fit a lot of the kind of visibility boxes. But um, there's a lot of queer people that remain invisibility, for example, queer migrants, which are often made invisible around this construction false construction that migrants are homophobic, so it erases them from existing. And so we, we don't have enough protections around, you know, queer asylum or uh, incorporating queer people. It actually even sometimes can pit LGBT people against migrants because they've been constructed like in Trump's America, but also in the German AfD and in the um, the French Front National or in, in the Dutch Freedom Party. We have these kind of homo-nationalist tendencies where certain queer people are pitted against other LGBT people. So it, there will this perception that uh, queer migrants don't exist or Muslim Uh, queer people don't exist um, is then used as a way to mobilize some right-wing, uh, typically gay men, to uh, support right-wing politics to say that we should keep out migrants, which are other minorities that that you know LGBT people should be in solidarity with. So, uh, so yeah, visibility is really really complicated, and unfortunately, I think there there are power dynamics to that too. Who gets to be visible? Um, is still a certain subset of the population. And that does, you know, leave behind, you know, leave behind or exclude other communities that are part of queer communities that have yet to get that same kind of visibility and recognition by, by the state and, and within LGBT communities as well. Hmm. I think one one issue that very much fits this and that we haven't really talked about explicitly is trans rights, which is, of course, a new uh, frontier, I would say, of this type of contentious politics also, where, you, where conflict seems much more visible and pronounced than, let's say, around marriage issues at the moment. Yeah, ab absolutely. Um, you know, and, and it's a really, it's a, actually, it's a great uh A great segue from the last question because you know we uh, the um, the gay liberation movement, which is that's where the the U.S. started playing quite a, a role also in uh, in queer politics. 
Um, that movement also had a lot of uh, uh, had a lot of act central activists that were um, that were trans or I mean their identities had different names back then, but were trans or non-binary. And um, they have not had the same kind of visibility. Actually, there was a Hollywood film called Stonewall that came out and they cast in the center a white straight acting, actually straight actor, but also straight acting character um, who like threw the first brick at Stonewall and incited the, the riots, which very much erased the work of like Sylvia Rivera, Marsha P. Johnson, you know, important uh, trans women of color that, uh, that were central to the movement, yet were made less visible. And actually, several of those activists um, kind of called out that erasure. As early as 1973, Sylvia Rivera gave a really important uh, uh, speech where she uh, was saying that uh, the um, the gay liberation movement was, was excluding uh, many uh, queer people despite its radical origins. Uh, and when, when it comes to trans rights globally, you know, when I was doing the book, which my, the time period uh, under analysis ended in 2010, there were still very few uh, gender recognition policies uh, to code for the quantitative analysis. And actually, in consultation with, uh, with trans activists, I decided not to code as success you know, some of those rare policies like the Swedish policy, because they included a provision uh, requiring sterilization. Uh, and so that was obviously not, uh, not, not progressive and, and not considered a success uh, by trans movements. That said, we, there are, there, there has been increasing visibility around, around trans politics. Um, uh, Balzar and Huta have a great chapter in a, in a volume uh, that I edited, uh, co-edited in 2014 that looks at the emergence of uh, TGEU or Transgender Europe, which is an important um, uh, NGO, international, transnational NGO. They work a lot with um, the other NGOs working on LGBT politics centrally, but they, they also see a need to specify uh, and highlighting issues affecting trans communities. And... Um, they're based in Berlin and uh, do similar kinds of transnational organizing work that I that I spoke about before, and we do see the, a rapid pro proliferation of um, gender recognition policies around the world. Many countries have uh, adopted them in recent years. Most of those countries are in Europe and Latin America, um, but we we definitely see this as a new frontier that's uh, that's. Um, uh, producing many successes around the world at the same time it comes in a backdrop of being you know with trans communities being a central target of a lot of this gender ideology backlash that we were talking about before a lot of uh, um, basic rights provisions policies being uh, being put on the agenda of conservative counter movements in, in many many places around the world in the US you know with the Trump administration we've seen um, uh, you know, actively aggressive rollback on trans um, uh, rights, including a, a transgender military ban. And so this community has been singled out uh, in a way that um, other LGBT, uh, other L LGB people have not. So for example, the Trump administration claimed that it, it was had this initiative to decriminalize homosexuality worldwide, which is, you know, sounds good on paper, but it's also quite problematic with the way they're doing it because it's mainly used as a backdrop to vilify certain countries and to, to tout kind of anti-migrant rhetoric. Um, at the same time, they're doing that while, you know, introducing multiple uh, policies that um, that roll back and discriminate specifically against trans people. So um, these are the kind of disparities, you know, in the community that we really have to think about. And I, I would hope, think of this kind of, our kind of, fate is intersectionally linked um, because trans people have always been central to the activism that we've been talking about, but have had less visibility um, at, as a group, you know, sometimes a lot of visibility individually, especially uh, a lot of the interviews I did with trans activists really talked about this interesting dynamic of, you know, feeling visible when on a bus or when in public and this concern around violence, which is so central um, to, to many trans uh uh, people's lives, um, yet at the same time, such little group visibility in terms of inclusion in, in uh, the broader movement and uh, and uh, uh, rights specifically 
addressing also gender identity being uh, being central to the movement, and and that that has been uh, a visibility that I think has come come later. Hmm. You already mentioned a little bit earlier the critical perspective of more the radical queer part um, of of many movements on same sex marriage, and I guess what I would want to ask you is the contentious politics that we still have that that are still out there is it easier to fight them because things like same-sex marriage have been achieved or has it become more difficult because basically one part of the movement the cliche upper middle class white gay men cis men have already gotten their share so they are less part of an of an active movement Yeah, I, I I don't know for sure, but it is. A, I mean, I don't know. I mean, in, in terms of, I haven't decided yet. I need to, to see more research, kind of on on that question. It is a hotly debated question. I think in queer theory, um, which is fantastic work in queer, queer theory, is is very concerned about this dynamic, uh, and especially around homo nationalism, and also kind of the. Um, the power differentials that I was talking about before between LGBT people that really can incorporate um, certain uh, LGBT people into the nation and into politics of imperialism and racism, et cetera. And I think that's a huge problem uh, with, uh, with LGBT communities like any other uh, community. Whether that translates, you know, how, how rapid that shift is, you know, for example, of some LGBT people voting for the far right or something. I, I, I haven't seen enough data really that, that suggests that the solidarity amongst these groups is, uh, is, is at its end. I, I'm not, I'm not sure yet. And we have to see where it goes. It's still very, very new that, you know, that any LGBT people are really get to be uh, part of the nation or get to be celebrated figures. But as this happens, yeah, I think there is, there is definitely a risk that it will, uh, it will lose some of the radical fervor of the movement. There is a counter argument to that though, that says that by gaining access to these institutions, that then there can be change from within. And there's also some evidence that suggests that is happening. Um, I, again, I, since it's not, precisely my own research. I don't want to take a, a stand on it, but I've heard really compelling kind of arguments on, on both uh, sides of this question. And when we look at numbers of like LGBT people actually voting for the far right, even though it's definitely a concern that we have to monitor and think of, um, most of the time I feel like there's, uh, there's still pretty good news there that uh, I was just looking at data, you know, from German elections, which showed, you know, how many Uh, how, how many self-identifying LGBT people voted for the AFD and it was I think 2.7% uh, and 6% voted for the CDU in, these, in the 2017 elections um, but then of course there were article headlines saying you know uh, half the amount of folks LGBT folks that voted for Angela Merkel voted for the AFD but I was like yeah but that's only because 6% of uh, voters voted for Angela Merkel there's still you know 90% that voted for um, other parties at the center and on the left so it, that did you know that kind of headline when I first saw it, it was like oh it's happened you know we fractured <laughs> you know LGBT people are are really voting for the right in Moss but then when you when you dig a little deeper that that actually the voting patterns in Germany and also in the US still provide some reassurance that for the most part these voters are still pretty firmly uh, linked on, on the on the left and, and when they're not then usually it's the usual suspects of uh, upper middle class white gay men we're already slowly coming to an end there's one question that i still wanted to ask you and that is that is um we're of course recording this at the moment in the in in in, in uh, pandemic isolation um and one thing i wanted to ask about is on this from a perspective of the politics of visibility um and it seems to me that many measures that we have currently taken will take their toll on all aspects of The, the visibility of marginal groups. And it very much seems to me that really in, in current political debates, uh, queer people or marginal groups are really inexistent and all the policies um, that are being devised at the moment are very much constructed around the, the narrow heterosexual, uh, quote unquote, core family. Yeah, yeah, that, 
That's true. I, I have seen a lot of that. At the same time, then there's opportunities like this. And thank you again for inviting me uh, to speak on a podcast about uh, LGBT issues in political science, which I think is a, another way we can generate uh, visibility around this research. And there's a lot of fantastic scholars doing research like this. Um, in terms of reading, uh, I, I think that, um, I mean, a couple uh, books that I, I read Hatun and Weldon's Logics of Gender Justice, which I think is really fantastic. Um, there has been some work on, uh, you know, a nice summary article of uh, uh, where LGBT rights in political science are in Europe was written by David Paternod in 2008. I think it's called Coming Out of the Political Science Closet. And Isa Engles also has a nice recent uh, piece called Gender and Sexuality Research in the Age of Populism and Lessons for Political Science. So I think those are those are some readings I would uh, I would recommend. And also, Dara Strolovich has a, a great piece on man sessions and he coveries, which I think is great crisis time <laughs> reading always. So um, maybe those uh, those readings, yeah. In a way, you've already answered my my final final question to 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 a certain degree, and that would have been for reading recommendations these days. Um, let me ask it yet again, anyway. Um, so, one recommendation for a, a political science work, if you have uh, some more to recommend, and then maybe one work of fiction that you could recommend. Oh, okay. Yes. Um, sorry for jumping the gun <laughs> there. Uh, one other political science work that I would recommend is, um, if I could give a plug to my, uh, one of my graduate students, um, is a student uh, doing his PhD in sociology at, uh, UT Austin, who's doing fantastic work on many of the dynamics. And he has a new article called The Queer Divide, which is in the International Studies Quarterly. Also really nice piece in social forces, which kind of looks at these international dynamics, but also really thinks about norm polarization and how both, you know, Act, activism and NGOs working on LGBT rights, but their opposition kind of play in unison. And so I think that I would, I would recommend that as my political science reading. And um, sorry, what was the rest of the question? Uh, a non-political science, maybe a work of fiction, some other recommendation. Yes. Um, I, I would recommend, uh, there's a great book by Salim Haddad called Guapa. Uh, like the, the Spanish word guapa, but it's actually a book, uh, that takes place in the Middle East. And it does a fantastic job, I think, of looking at the intersection of race and sexuality, uh, in contemporary politics. And even though I don't think the author was, was really writing about homonationalism or performativity or a lot of themes in queer politics, I think they are, I mean, at least when I was reading it, I, I saw a lot of those themes and it's a wonderful book, a uh, wonderful novel, very, very, uh, very quick read because it's uh, so hard to put down. So I, I would recommend yeah, that Guapa by Salim Haddad. Great. Thanks, Philip. Really, thank you so much. It was a great conversation. Um, thank you everyone for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast and learned as much as I did. Thank you, Tarek. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate you doing this.